Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Is Florida becoming one of the new manufacturing hubs in the U.S.? We recently had on Juan March from Jacksonville, Florida, and today we have another Florida machine shop startup, P3D Creations, who are in the greater Orlando area. One of the things that I thought about is you're probably wondering why I speak with very small shop owners. And it's very relevant to manufacturing part making today because they are not committed to structures and ways of doing things that technology is upending. They are starting fresh, sometimes without manufacturing backgrounds. They're digital natives and they're designing the shops around the tools that may not have existed or even been possible five years ago. And although they're small, they are cutting edge in many ways. And I think all shops can learn from what they're doing and pick up some ideas to try, something new that may be different than the way your shop is operating. Nick Polanowski, founder and owner of P3D Creation, joins us. And he's going to share how he is automating the hell out of his shop by necessity. We're going to talk about some of the tools Nick uses. Fusion 360 and paperless parts you may have heard of, but there's others you probably have not heard of. Airtable and the Python programming language. We're going to get into those, delve into automated inspection, smart switches, and file management. With that, welcome to the Job Shop Show, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm so excited for some of these things because I know I'm going to learn a lot. I wanted to start, though, you attended Emory-Riddle College in Florida, which is known as being an aeronautical-focused college and producing a lot of graduates who like to fly things. Yet, 
you decided very quickly you didn't actually have an interest in flying things. So what's your aviation type background and why did you decide you didn't want to fly things? So I've been around aviation since I was a kid. My dad flew fighter jets in the U.S. military. So I was sort of just introduced to them from birth. And as I grew up, I took an interest in building things. My dad was into model trains. So that kind of got me started learning about electricity, learning about basic mechanical devices and working with my hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I was a teenager, model airplanes were perfect. I wanted to learn how to fly because it's what my dad did. It was cool. And I got to you know, build things and do more of the electronics and so on. So model planes basically drove me to where I am now. I got a job at a hobby shop. I worked retail that helped me get used to talking to people and so doing sales. And that was my, my first introduction to working in a business. And then you know, throughout high school, I continued just going nuts on the radio control planes, building them, designing my own, modifying ones I had purchased off the shelf. And it actually drove me to start my first business, which was going to be an aerial photography company. This was right around the time drones were kind of getting big, but you couldn't quite buy them off the shelf yet. You had to build your own. And I was mm-hmm. using Arduinos and I ripped apart Nintendo Wii controllers because they were- What are, a, what are Arduinos? They're compact, inexpensive- microcontrollers. And there's a vast community surrounding this particular type of microcontroller. So when you say microcontroller, first of all, how inexpensive are they? And what are some of the, maybe not specifically what you did, but what are some of the common uses where people would buy these Adrenos and if I said it correctly and, and use them? Oh man, there's everything. So you can buy these for $5. It's a little microcontroller. You program it with basically JavaScript. You plug it into your computer with USB and you can program it to do anything from blinking a light to automatically feeding your cat food to actually controlling drones and becoming a flight controller and interfacing with sensors. And I even have a couple throughout my shop that are doing various tasks. These are things that as shop owners, they didn't exist when we were kids and probably the last 10 years or so that is when they came around. But for you, it's common. That's how you grew up. You used it for making your hobby more fun. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like you were trying to get into a business with it. So how were you going to use that with your planes? I don't know that I set out to start a business. It was just, it was a hobby from the beginning. But then I realized that I had a skill that other people might pay for. I could stick a camera on one of these things, start taking some pictures. And then before I knew it, I was building specific drones for that purpose. And I started finding some business in the area. A local golf course asked me to come out and take video of all of their holes and edit something together. A couple of real estate companies asked me to take pictures of houses. I had some friends who had dirt bikes and went out and raced them. So I would go out to the track with them and film them doing a dirt bike racing. So cool. And that was sort of the start of my entrepreneurial journey. That only lasted a few years because it got complicated quickly. Shortly after I really got into it, the FAA started changing all of the rules. And it was just hard to keep up with. And not being 18 yet, I couldn't qualify for all the the licensing that they were working on. But I figured, hey, you know what? I like this. And I applied for Mm Embry-Riddle as I was leaving high school and uh, got down here to Florida and uh, enrolled in their unmanned aircraft systems program because I thought I wanted to be a professional drone pilot. I made it about a week and realized I did not want to be a professional drone pilot. It wasn't the flying that I liked. It was all of the building, the tinkering, the 
electronics and the programming and the mechanical assembly of these things. So I switched over to a mechanical engineering track, did that for about a year, but somewhere in there, I was starting to look at the tuition bill and didn't really feel like I was going to get as much out of it as I was putting into it. So you Um, wanted to get the hands-on education as opposed to... Yeah, I've never really done well in a classroom environment. Was the next step you left college, you got a job, but is that where you got involved with the 3D printing? There are several timelines happening simultaneously here. So the radio control planes continued through the start of my college career. Towards the end of high school, I got a 3D printer from my engineering teacher there. And somebody had started working on it several years prior and just never got it running. So he just gave it to me to play with. I I worked on it during lunch and, and things like that, and then eventually got it working. And that was just something fun I did as a hobby. But once I was uh, down here in Florida, I set it up in my dorm and I met Katie, my life partner and business partner. She's, she's the other half of the business. Mm -hmm. So Katie suggested that we actually try starting a business doing some 3D printing because this was, again, right before 3D printing at a consumer level really got big and accessible to the masses. Mm -hmm. So our timing was just right where since we had a 3D printer that didn't cost $100,000, we could print things at a reasonable price for people who needed prototypes and people who wanted trinkets and things for their hobbies. And we actually, we did all right with that. Spending money. Is it more along that sort of line? At first, it was some spending money. And then we both left Embry-Riddle around the same time. And we actually made it a full-time gig. I still had a a part-time job working at a hobby shop in the area Mm -hmm. because I I wanted some kind of a a backup plan. But between the two of us, we actually did okay with 3D printing, paid rent for a year and a half, two years. And that drove us to Maker Faire, which was in Orlando. And Maker Faire, it's like an expo for nerds. It's a bunch of makers and hobbyists of all different kinds get together and show off their stuff. And people come and see it and they learn about everything from sewing to 3D printing to tiny souped up Power Wheels cars that cars that you normally buy for children, but people go and put bigger motors in them. And they have race series here and they have battle bots. And there's all kinds of neat stuff that you can see at at Maker Faire, everything from engineering to art and beyond. My understanding is the Maker Faire is a, as you're describing, is and perhaps they do it in several places, but there's an annual convention. And the theme is physically making stuff because so much we over the years have outsourced to other countries, as you said, apparel. And this gets back to the roots of the farmers fixing their own equipment in the fields, Mm -hmm. the homesteaders where there was no one around to necessarily uh, you broke your shovel or you the harness broke something like that you had to make it fix it yourself yeah so the as i understand that's what the maker fair is about the joy of making things and now you add on things like the adreno controller so you've got the electronics and the systems approach to enhance the capabilities exactly exactly yeah it's the physical making it's the digital making it's largely not commercially focused. It's just for for the pure joy and Mm. and fun of it. Although, of course, there's going to be overlap. There are tons of small businesses that grow out of people's passion projects. There are, of course, businesses that come to these maker fairs who sell hardware and 
bits and bobs that complement everything that everyone else is working on. But yeah, these are really neat events for just meeting other people with similar interests, possibly discovering things you didn't know existed or didn't know were accessible to just the average person. Mm-hmm. And it, they're open to the public. So they, yeah, and these do occur all around the country. What did you learn at the Maker Fair? How, where did that take you? We brought our 3D printers there to show off what we did and try to get some exposure, meet some people, maybe drum up some business. And the fair itself was, was interesting. We'd never seen so many people in one place who spoke our language. It was great just interacting with all of these people. But a group came over to us and said, hey, we have a, a hackerspace. You should come to our after party and check it out. We didn't know what a hackerspace was. So we didn't actually go to the after party. But a couple of weeks later, we went and investigated this hackerspace. And I guess it's, it's sort of like if you could put just a maker fair in one building, but in, instead of existing for a weekend, it exists continuously. I'd like to point out that there are many flavors of hackerspace. There's hackerspace, there are makerspaces, there are fab labs, and, and every single one of them has its own organizational structure, has its own culture, has its own setup. So the one that we have in our area is FamiLab, which stands for, I think, 4AM iLab or 4AM in the lab. So. You joined FamiLab, and why did you become part of that community, and how did that get you to the point where you decided to set up your own machine shop? We joined FamiLab, and we didn't know what machining was. I think I had purchased a Harbor Freight mini mill from a buddy who just had it laying around because I wanted to build some battle bots, but because I had something that technically qualified as a milling machine, it didn't mean I knew anything about machining. So I I joined FamiLab and Katie and I, of course, helped take care of the 3D printers there. They had a laser cutter that we were very interested in. We learned how to use that. And I kind of just worked my way around their shop. I taught myself to weld. I taught myself how to use their CNC router in the wood shop. And Mm. they have a photography lab. They have a biohacking lab. So the last thing that sort of remained was the, the metal shop. And I'd never seen a lathe before. I hadn't seen a bridge board in person. I didn't really appreciate how big they were and the kind of stuff you could do with them, but nobody there knew how to use them. There were, there were tools that had been donated. And in, in a lot of cases, they needed some work. So I took to the internet and I found all of the YouTube channels that would have existed in 2015 and watched MIT's machining courses. I watched Mr. Pete and I watched NYC CNC and Mm -hmm. John Grimsmo, and everyone that I could find and just started absorbing information. And then once I was confident I wasn't going to cut off a hand, I just went out there and started playing with the tools. Mm -hmm. At this point, I had no intention of doing machining as a business. It was just learning for fun for the purposes of attempting to build a battle bot. And once I was okay at manual machining, the very last thing in the shop was a 1993 Haas VF1. It wasn't hooked up. Nobody knew how to use it. As far as anyone knew, it was broken, but I, I had gotten a taste of it with the Bridgeport. So I really wanted to learn CNC and same deal. Kept on watching videos, read everything I could, and eventually just got my hands dirty, learned about three-phase power. The machine got hooked up. It powered on. It had alarms. I, I read the manual. I started methodically just checking everything. And uh, then the spindle started turning. And hmm. that was a wonderful moment. That was the start of the current chapter of my life. I'm hearing a lot of learning where you didn't know anything. You just had the desire. And what I'm sensing is, is the more you learn how to do things that you'd never done before, probably the more confidence you had that you could figure out how to 
do something new, even though you've never done it. Every bit of knowledge that I acquired just built on what I already knew. And it just keeps on building and building. And you learn not only the exact bit of knowledge you needed, but you learn how to look for information. And uh, you learn how to learn. Exactly. Yeah. And then all of your skills, even you know, the, the 3D printing stuff transferred to the CNC because in the end, 3D printers are little CNC machines. They work the same. I just had to put that together. Mm-hmm. And the mill is a little bit more complicated, but in the end, it has three axes and it uses motors and it takes G-code. The 3D printers were a great starting place. You recently bought a five-axis machining center. You have never programmed a five-axis machining center. You've never owned a five-axis machining center. How are you going to learn how to make this machine run and not crash it? Where are you going to go to get that information? I have done some remote programming work for another shop Hmm. with a UMC 750. And from 3,000 miles away, having never touched a five-axis machine before, I actually programmed a whole slew of parts for them. How did you convince them to let you do that? I don't know. I must have just sounded confident. (laughs) (laughs) But it was successful, though. No crashes, no bangs. They got their parts made. So how did you learn how to program five-axis for that particular remote job? Luckily, Fusion 360 makes multi-axis programming really easy, especially if it's just indexing. If you're just accessing different sides of a part, it's very easy. You just press the tool orientation button and it effectively creates a new setup at the angle that you ask it to. Mm -hmm. As long as you have the machine model inside Fusion, you can simulate it and uh, verify that you're not going to hit anything. If you start doing simultaneous five-axis moves, of course, it becomes a little bit more unpredictable. But simple indexing, which is all they need and all you need 90% of the time, is actually not particularly difficult. You just have to pay extra attention to the work holding, extra attention to where the spindle housing is compared to the table and so on. Did you use Fusion 360's internally produced tutorials? Did you go on YouTube for tutorials other people produce? Were there other sources that you went to? I'm trying to figure out how much was produced by Autodesk and how much was produced by other folks Mm -hmm. and which was more valuable and where was that content? By the time I was doing that particular job, I had a few years of machining experience at the hackerspace and we were actually in the process of moving into our new shop of our own. This would have been 2018 or so. And so I had a good grasp on the three axis. And then past that, I just, yeah, YouTube videos at Instagram. There's actually a vast machining community on Instagram. Mm-hmm. If you uh, just search the Insta Machinist hashtag, there's thousands <laughs> and thousands of posts and very good information from a, a wide variety of people. Even if people are just showing off the part they made, mm-hmm. if you look closely, you can see how they held it. You can see what strategy they approached it with. You can see what sort of tooling they used mm-hmm. and what they programmed it with and what machine they're running it on. You can pick up a lot if you're just observant because people love showing off what they've done. I just lived and breathed and slept this stuff for five years and counting. I don't necessarily sit down and say, I'm going to learn five axis today. I've been learning five axis for three years. Mm -hmm. I just haven't had a machine to actually apply it with yet. You are now running P3D creations. You're machining. You had a lathe. And what I really want to get into is you didn't have the background of coming from a machine shop. So you created things on the fly to meet your needs. And 
again, because you're a digital native, you have used a lot of technology and automation. So I want to drill into a lot of that. And I first would like to focus on the front end before you get an order and have to process it through the shop. So what tools are you using to save time? What do you think is essential? What did you consider and not use? Just give us a give us a landscape of the front end of your shop. So I guess starting from the very beginning before we have a customer or an order, we don't do as much on marketing as I would like. That's actually our focus for this year is to start doing more active marketing. Up to this point, we've used our network from the hackerspace to sort of bootstrap some customers. We've used a number of the you know, public and membership type job boards to, to you know, find some new customers. And it's, it's just been a lot of word of mouth that's actually kept us going. So there hasn't necessarily been a need mm-hmm. for heavy marketing in the traditional sense. But now that we're expanding, we're looking into doing some more deliberate marketing actions. So once somebody finds us, that's when we really start to get into the, uh, the meat and potatoes of it. We use paperless parts right now for all of our quoting. And that also handles a lot of our customer communication as far as order confirmations. And then on the back end, packing slips and shipping labels and things like that. And customers love it. Before this, we used, well, the good old Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. The, hey, that looks about right. And we used ProShop for a little bit. The ProShop ERP was all right, but it, it was a little bit heavy for us as a really small shop. So we, we use that for a year. I think it's probably awesome if you're a big like AS9102 or ISO shop or something, but for three people, mm-hmm. it costs a lot and it was just too much administrative overhead. So uh, we went to paperless parts after that and it's a lot leaner, a lot closer to, uh, to what we actually need. Why do you prefer it over an Excel spreadsheet? So the automatic geometry recognition and semi-automatic pricing is a game changer for us. I, I basically had to program parts in Fusion to get accurate machine times, then punch that into a spreadsheet. And that just wasn't practical. I did that for years and it was terrible. Even when we were on ProShop, they didn't have any geometry recognition or anything. So it was still the same quoting process. It just looked a little bit nicer when it went out to the customer. So getting away from manually quoting things was huge for us. And that allows me or Katie to send quotes to customers confidently. I'm not the only one who can do that anymore. So that was a really big deal for us. I like on your website, how you use it as a sales tool as well. And to demonstrate the technology in your shop, you have a area where you talk about your smart RFQ form, and then an area where you talk about your interactive quotes. So it's obviously a tool that works for you, but you're able to not just hide that in the background, but promote to the customers. And I look at websites as billboards. So you are trying to differentiate yourself from the other machine shop on your website. Why do you want to do business with me? Mm -hmm. And you're giving them reasons to do business with you through the smart quotes. You get an order now. You don't have an ERP system. How do you manage everything going through your shop? We have a custom built Airtable based, I guess it would be an ERP or an MRP. I'm not sure what it technically qualifies as, but we have a production planning system that we use. What is Airtable? Airtable is a web-based relational database software 
with a lot of really slick features that make it accessible for somebody like me. And we can integrate it with a lot of different pieces of software very easily. Mm -hmm. It just, we were able to build it into exactly what we need. It has a Kanban view so that we can just drag a job through the various stages. Mm. We can make all kinds of custom fields so that we can, we can track, you know, how many parts were ordered, how many we've made. It'll link to the, uh, the paperless parts. So you can uh, click on something and pull up the file. Yeah. And then it also hangs on to all of the information that we got with the job. What finishing requirements does it have? What inspection requirements does it have? What material is it? When's the due date? And they have a plugin that allows you to do automatic document generation from any given record. So not only does it allow us to track our orders as they move through our shop, that would be you know, easy to do with any number of systems, but I can generate packing slips and I can generate inspection sheets and certificates of conformance and finishing instructions and all of these things with one click and move them through the shop. Sounds like you built a MRP light, ERP light that works for your shop at the size it is. What I'm curious about is how long did it take you to develop this? And I'm sure it is continually evolving, mm -hmm. but to get it so it was functional and you were using it regularly in your shop, what sort of time period from start to finish and how many hours do you think you put into it? It probably took a month of working on it on the weekends and the occasional evening here and there to get mm -hmm. it functional. But of course, it's continued to evolve since with various features I've added taking slight, you know, varying amounts of time. We've been adding additional automations and scripting to it so that there is less user interaction required. What do you um, mean by that? Give me an example. Very simple stuff would be if today is after a job's due date that it reads from that field, then the job turns red and we get a Slack message. Hey, there's a job that's late and we should do something about it. That's on the simple end. On the more complex side, we have actually an entire paperless parts integration that we wrote ourselves, that whenever a new order comes in, it automatically populates our Airtable-based system mm -hmm. with all of the job information. And we get notifications that a new job has come in. It starts generating the documents automatically. The next evolution of that is to actually have it drop the parts into Fusion 360 for us. The idea is we shouldn't be doing data entry. Data entry is slow and computers are so good at it. Humans should not be spending their time on that. When so you anything... say you get an order, so someone will place the order in the paperless parts system. Correct. And the first time you see it is after the Airtable has done all this magic. Yeah, it'll pop up on our Kanban board in the, uh, the PO received section. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time we see it. And we'll, we'll usually get a Slack notification too. So my, my smartwatch will buzz and I'll know that we got something. And then the next thing that happens if is... If I could ask a question before you move on. So you've mentioned Slack twice. For those who don't know what Slack is, brief explanation, and then how and why do you use Slack? Slack is it's a workplace-focused instant messaging system. You have conversations that are organized into channels. So we, just, we have a general channel for a shop talk about what's going on and what needs to be done that day in case... We're going to miss each other or I need to be out for a little bit. I'll leave some messages in there and we can document parts. But we also have an ERP notifications channel. So any new orders coming in, anything that's late or at risk of being late, that'll pop up there. And it's a little bit more in your face than the Kanban board sitting on your spare monitor might be. Why not use email or text? Our email inbox gets used for lots of other things. We, we just have a single purpose tool here. 
that's just for work-related communications internal mm-hmm. to the company where I'm not going to have other emails coming in, causing things to get lost. It's, it's very easy to trace all of the events that have happened and when they happened. And it's just reducing clutter as much as we can. Really cool that you mentioned that one of the next possible implementations is automatically programming the parts using Fusion 360. So Airtable has the connections and the ability to auto start Fusion 360 and follow some routines or templates that you have predefined? Airtable does not. However, Airtable and Paperless Parts both have APIs that are extremely flexible. Mm -hmm. So with some fairly basic programming knowledge, uh, you can utilize those APIs and connect two pieces of software that don't know that each other exist. Hmm. And it's very easy to just translate the, you know, what field A into field B over in the other piece of software. And you might have to reformat things a little bit. Is there a particular software that has to act as sort of the neutral language between them? Or do they sort of talk directly? There are various services you can use. It really depends on what you're trying to connect to what. There are services like If This Then That. There's Zapier. There's probably a dozen more I've looked at, but I don't really use. Which ones do you use? We have used Zapier and If This Then That for basic things in the past, connecting Gmail to Airtable or connecting Slack to Airtable. Those work fine. Mm -hmm. But Paperless Parts is a little bit of a niche software as is Fusion 360. And these big companies don't know that they exist or that anyone would ever want to use these with their software. So we wrote our own middleman for Airtable to paperless. We just call it Airpaper. Okay. But it's just a, a JavaScript web server that we have spun up and it checks paperless every couple of minutes for new orders. And then if there's a new order, it sends that over to Airtable and adjusts the data as needed to fit Airtable's you know, required formatting. And then when we get the Fusion 360 one working, it'll work much the same way. It'll talk to the Fusion 360 API and go and grab the URL for the uh, solid models, fetch the customer information, and then using that, it'll go put it in the right folders inside Fusion 360. Do you consider what you created, I'll call the translator, proprietary, or would that be something you would be willing to offer to someone who asked? and have the knowledge, I guess, to actually implement it. It's something I might be willing to share. However, it's very much made for our very specific use case. Mm -hmm. And the way we use everything is not going to be the same way everybody else uses it. And at at the very least, it would require some some polish Mm -hmm. and some documentation before we're ready for the masses. Possibly it would be an example, though, of what can be done for sure yeah particular... and like hypothetically this is it's not right. a particularly difficult piece of software almost anybody with a little bit of software background can write something equivalent and make it do what they need it to do it's not really high level stuff it's just very simple software that makes our life way easier when that's the thing it's, it's not black magic and i'm not trying to represent it as such fusion 360 why that for your cad and cam solution Autodesk gave an educator version of their software to my high school. I think I learned Inventor 2012, I guess about 10 years ago now. That was my first introduction to CAD software of any kind. Mm -hmm. So just because it was the first thing I was exposed to, I did AutoCAD and I did Inventor. 
I was sort of on the Autodesk train to begin with. I, I didn't get to touch SolidWorks until much, much later. Mm-hmm. And now that we have our, our business, the, the price is right. And the feature set is extensive. It's just Fusion's a really, really good value for the money. It's not the best CAD software out there. It's not the best CAM software. But as far as what you get for what you pay, it's exceedingly good. They update it every single month and they add new features and they fix things, bugs or quality of life things that people have been asking for. Mm-hmm. And that has a wide community. Almost all of those aforementioned Why, YouTube channels use it. You know, I was going to say, why does community matter for CAD and CAM software? For me anyway, based on the way that I learn and I consume information, I usually just Google something whenever I have a problem. Mm-hmm. And if there's a big community, there's probably chatter about it somewhere, whether it's you know someone made a YouTube video with a tutorial on how to do something, it's on the Autodesk forums, it's on you know, one of the other many CNC tangential forums out there. Someone probably has an answer. I'm usually not the first person to come across a problem. Mm-hmm. Not by any stretch. So having a wide community that is kind of in the public view is really nice. If you have the high-end software that's inaccessible, the user base is typically a lot smaller. And if there are problems, people call their distributor, they call their reseller, or they call the company themselves. And that conversation kind of happens behind closed doors. You don't have the public sharing of how to fix that problem. So that reseller is going to get the same call over and over from all these people and like that's fine if it works for them, but I, I like having the information accessible at my fingertips in this day and age. Well, it seems like it's a lot more efficient as a reseller not get a bunch of calls and just have people Google Probably. it. Probably. And I think people are picking that up and they're, they're doing a better job of documentation. And the Fusion sort of setting the precedent where the, the other companies are seeing what they're doing and trying to play catch up. And I think it's good for the industry as a whole. That's just kind of getting us out of the, you know, the 20th century thinking where everything was paper manuals and the single source of knowledge was the guy that had been working there for 30 years and he knew everything. Now it's like, wait a second, we can just post this on the internet and anybody can learn anything. Hmm. It's better all around. So you're not captive to one individual in your shop who has that proprietary knowledge that just isn't available elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is really valuable for a shop owner to think about. If you are trying to create redundancy, fail safes in your shop, you want information about whatever it is to be at your fingertips, to be accessible. I want to come back to Fusion with some questions I have on how you're operating your shop. But first I wanted to ask you about the way that you use a couple other things. First of all, you are using smart switches and you are saving electricity and automating some other things by smart switches. So can you talk just a little bit about what you're doing, why you're doing it, what specific tools you're using? Sure. Yeah. So I was looking at my electricity bill a few months back and talking to my neighbor and my bill was way higher than his. Now I have a whole bunch of machines that have 30 horsepower, three phase motors in them. So I should consume more electricity than his little wood shop, but it seemed still higher than it should have been. So I I started measuring power consumption on some different devices. And I noticed that the shop lights were- Wait, how did you you measure power consumption? Just like a a clamp on multimeter that can measure current. And did you do that? Over time, does it record, say, over 24 hours? You can get logging types as well as instantaneous. Depending on the device, you may want to choose one over the other. I just took instantaneous readings on things and then Mm -hmm. figured out their duty cycle manually. 
but -hmm. you could certainly hook up a logger if you have something that runs irregularly like an air compressor to Mm -hmm. uh, more accurately chart its real power consumption. Mm -hmm. But I I started characterizing uh, the lights in the shop, both in the office and out in the warehouse, the air compressor. We started estimating the power that the machines consumed. And I realized that the biggest contributors were not the air conditioning and the machines. They were actually the shop lights. Wow. Turns out fluorescent lights, when you have enough of them, they, they draw a lot of power. So we did two things. One, I switched out all of the lights in the office to LEDs, and that alone cut the office power consumption by 75%. Really? Yeah. It's like 14 watts per tube on LED versus like 75 watts on a fluorescent or something. And then all, I noticed the LEDs were brighter, so I halved the number of tubes in each picture <laughs> to even further reduce it. Gotcha. It's ridiculous. LEDs are great. Yeah. So that was the easy thing. But the shop lights are up really high. And because of our shop layout and the machines we have in it, it would be expensive and difficult to get up to the top and replace them. So we installed task lighting using LED fluorescent replacement tubes um, above my desk, above the manual lathe, above other workstations that we're at frequently. So if you're just working in one area, maybe mm. sitting down, not doing anything you know, risky, you can just turn that on and not use more than a kilowatt of fluorescent lights. Now for everything else that has to run, but doesn't necessarily have to run all the time. We have a Google Home, a smart device. You could do the same with Alexa or any other similar Mm -hmm. system. And we use smart switches from a company called Shelly. Now they make switches that worked really well for our purposes, but there are, of course, a variety of different vendors who sell similar devices. And these are just switches. They're a little relay that connects to Wi-Fi and that integrates with Google Home or Alexa. Mm-hmm. You can tell us to turn on the shop lights. We hooked our air. So in your in your office, you can verbally turn on the shop lights as well as whatever else you've hooked up. Yeah, to. air compressor, air dryer, coolant skimmers, mist collectors. I haven't put the machines on it yet because I don't want to accidentally shut one of those off. Mm-hmm. And three phase contactors are relatively expensive. But all of the 110 volt and single phase 240 volt devices that we can, we are putting on smart switches because it's just so nice to walk into the shop and just say, turn on the shop lights and they're on. And if you realize you're sitting at your desk for a while and you don't need to be burning these dozen plus fluorescent lights, you can just have it turn them off and you don't have to physically get up, walk across the shop and flip the switch. And it's very easy to save energy that way. What does a smart switch cost? If you have a 110 volt device, it's like 12 bucks. It it plugs into your outlet and then you plug your device into the other side Mm -hmm. and you're done. For the one for higher power devices, I think it was about $60 to do the air compressor. And that one also had an additional current monitoring clamp. So it was not only able to switch the compressor on and off, but I was able to monitor the higher current power. I can actually see a graph over time of how much power the air compressor has used. And I can even see the, the voltage spikes in the system. So I can see the high and the low. And that gives me more information I can take back to the power company if I start getting voltage fluctuations. Since I have that monitoring over time, I can say, hey, guys, is there anything we can do to tighten this up so that my equipment's happier? Is the manufacturer's name who you use for your the smart switch on your in the monitoring device for the compressor? Is that Shelly as well? Yeah, that's Shelly. But there are various manufacturers of these sort of things. And they're actually just running on similar microcontrollers to the Arduino. Just you know, put one of those on a board and add some additional hardware, bundle it up in a nice UL listed package, and you're off to the races. 
And those are very easy. They have an API too. So if you want to do something fancy with them, you can write software that'll interface with them directly. Mm. But otherwise you just use their app and you can hook it up very easily to your smart devices and whatever ecosystem you happen to use. So you walk into your shop in the morning and everything's dark and quiet and you just talk to your shop and it turns on. Or even better, when I get in my truck in the morning, I tell it to turn everything on and then the air's out by the time I get there. That's even better. And then uh, when we run a machine late into the night, the lights don't have to stay on. I can turn off the lights and then I can tell it to turn off the air compressor once the machine's done. I have cameras on the machines, so I can check in on them, make sure everything is okay. The machine will auto power off Mm -hmm. uh, once the cycle finishes. And uh, when that happens, the air compressor can turn off so I'm not wasting compressed air all night, which is compressed air is expensive. It's relatively inefficient. Yeah, interesting. So even just that probably saves us at least a handful of bucks per month it's more the mindset and the philosophy. If you think about all the different ways that you're using power consumption, then in an aggregate, it does make a difference. And what's the saying? What measured gets fixed. If you're not measuring, you aren't really paying attention to it. Yeah, you're blind. We actually, in addition to this, we added a airflow meter to our compressed air system. So now I can see if there's a leak in the system. I don't have to wait until it starts hissing loudly. I know what the baseline consumption is. Mm-hmm. And one of these flow sensors will start flashing a light and, and beeping if it detects a, uh, a leak in the system. Has that happened? Not yet. It's, it's only been installed for about a month and a half. And what um, is the cost of that sensor? Those are $300 or so. Flow meters are surprisingly complicated devices. So they're not down at the like hobbyist price mm-hmm. point yet, but they're also not inaccessible and they're pretty easy to set up. And that also this helps us if we ever need to buy a, a new air compressor. I have minimum, maximum, and average airflow, mm-hmm. as well as cumulative air consumption over a given period of time. So what I'm hearing here is if I am thinking of buying a new air compressor, putting one of these on and monitoring my old compressor for a month is going to give me a lot of information to make sure I'm buying the right air compressor for the replacement. You you don't buy one that's undersized that you're going to run to death and you don't buy one that's oversized and will cost you Mm -hmm. more money up front and more money to run. You can size it just right and just a little bit of information that's easy to acquire. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about standardization in the shop and how you've standardized your tools, your setups, cam templates. First of all, why are you standardizing? Because when you standardize, you typically introduce inefficiencies because it's tailored to the general, not the specific. Hmm. So why standardize? We specialize in prototypes. Most parts we make are in quantities of maybe one to 25. We're not usually doing long runs of a given part. So it's most important for us to be able to change over from one job to another as quickly as we can. That's why we're willing to make compromises that might add some cycle time, or maybe we're using a tool that's a little bit less than ideal because we save it on the front end. And of course, if we get a larger job, we'll take out some of the the standardized tools and we'll put in something more optimal. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Most of the time, our tools stay in place and we use the same tools on almost every job for a given material. And especially now that we're going to have multiple modern mills, we've had two older machines that we're getting rid of. And now that that five axis machine is showing up, 
Mm -hmm. It's the same machine make as our, our current primary machine. So the control will be familiar. The code will be identical. And if we keep all of the same tools in the same tool positions, then if one machine is busy and we need to do something really quick on the other, we're not taking tools out, reconfiguring them, putting them back in. There's less room for error. You'll be less likely to touch off a tool incorrectly or forget to touch one off and then have it crash. If the same tools are just in the same place every time, you're confident that they're going to be right. Did the commonality of the manufacturer play a part in the decision when you bought your five axis? Absolutely. And which yeah. brand are you using? So we purchased a Haas UMC 500. So we've been using Haas machines up to this point, except for our lathe. And so they're not the biggest, beefiest machines out there. They certainly won't compete with a Japanese machine, but they have a very easy to use control interface. They're well supported. They also have a wide community because they, they sell a lot of machines. And they're a great value. For a small shop like us, that just makes them accessible. If I wanted to buy a, you know, pick your brand of Japanese machine, I'd have to save up for another couple of years at least before it would make sense. And in that time, I can have a Haas on my shop floor, start making money with it. And then if I decide I would need something higher end, the Haas will pay for it. Why did you decide you needed a five axis and the continued use of your three axis and your rotary table weren't going to cut it? We do a lot of prototype jobs and most of the time is in setup and programming. The actual cycle time of our parts is pretty much irrelevant. I don't really look at that unless it's hmm. ridiculous, like 12 hours. I, I don't care about saving seconds here and there. It's the setup time. It's how long does it take from the time that order comes in to the time I have it programmed and ready to run on the machine. The more setups we have to do on a part, the more times I have to go through that cycle. I might have to make custom fixtures. I might have to come up with some special arrangement for a given part because it has a feature at a strange angle. Mm -hmm. And you run into limitations with a three-axis machine where you're, you're doing four, five, six setups for a part that has just one hole on each side. And mm -hmm. every time you do a new setup, you introduce inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. You add labor, more time where a human is handling the part. Every time a human touches the part, there's a chance they're going to scratch it or drop it or put it in the wrong place, and it, it just stacks up. What I am hearing is that you have a five-axis machining center to make three-axis parts with multiple setups. Yeah, primarily we purchased it for setup reduction. Very, I love it. I love it. That's That makes so much sense. Yeah, I, I'm very excited about the, the fancy five-axis moves we can now do, and the fact that I can drill a hole at a 37.5-degree angle without a sign bar. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of our day-to-day -day work, our bread and butter, it's reaching those other three or four sides of the part that normally would take another three or four part clampings mm -hmm. in order to access those faces. And we have a rotary table on our machine. We purchased that, I think, late October. But we've been using that along with fifth axis, zero point work holding. It's been poor man's five axis. But between the zero point face plate and their angle plate, we've been able to index parts to access five sides. Mm -hmm. And once we got that in the shop, that pretty much drove the decision to buy the five axis machine because we saw what could be, but it still required more manual work than we wanted. It so just it gave a us a way, taste of it. So what you just put forth is a really inexpensive way for a shop owner to verify, to try an experiment to see if five axis 
machines will actually be of benefit to them in the types of parts they're using. Absolutely. Yeah. So they, you, can, they can make the same decision you did, or maybe they decide it doesn't work. Yeah. We just, so we hopped on eBay and we found a good deal on a used Haas rotary that would fit our machine. Mm -hmm. We purchased all the work holding that you would for a fifth axis machine. We just bought an angle plate so that instead of having a vice stuck on the face of a rotary, you had it facing the spindle. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then we were making five axis parts with a five axis workflow. But the only limitation is that you can only index I guess what would be the C-axis in 90 degree increments. But for a lot of parts, that's plenty. It reduces a part with holes on six faces from six different setups down to possibly just two. You still have to index it manually on the vise, but you don't have to reset the coordinate system. The part does not unclamp from the vise. So it's a good way to sort of simulate it. And because you still have the continuous fourth axis, what would be it's the A-axis on, on a four-axis vertical mill, but on a five axis, it would be analogous to the B axis on the machine. You can still swing that through plus or minus 90 degrees and start doing some parts that have off angle features in one axis or possibly even two. You could index the, uh, the virtual C axis. You just can't do compound angles yet, but it's already allowed us to expand into much more complicated parts than we could previously do. And in some cases, we're actually able to tab them off and do them in one operation. So we get finished parts off the machine in one setup. Talk about tabbing, because this is a concept that's getting some traction and people may have heard of it. They may not have, but what is tabbing? Why do you want to use it? Tabbing is something I first learned about when I was learning the CNC router at the hackerspace. It turns out if you try to just cut a part out from a sheet of plywood, and you cut all the way through, the part goes flying as soon as you make that last cut. <laughs> Funny how that happens. <laughs> right? Yeah. And unless you have a vacuum plate or so on. But yeah, when you have mechanical cutting forces, you need to hold things in place somehow. So uh, you can add small tabs, just little pieces of material that are easy to remove afterwards that are just enough to hold the part in place. It's always a balancing act. Mm -hmm. So you can apply that to the two and a half D world with uh, CNC routers. And you can apply it to the machining world, even just in three axis. You can machine a part out of a solid block and suspend it in the middle with some tabs. And this can allow you to do complex parts that are difficult to clamp any other way. You keep your rectangular sides in your vise and you can flip the part up, down, left, right. And the very last thing you do is you cut all the way around it and leave these tabs and the part is just suspended there. And then you usually have post-processing to do you saw the tabs off or you file them or you have to be careful about your placement because you need to be able to remove them cleanly. But if you have a flat surface somewhere on your model, it's very easy to clean it up with a file, with a, a belt grinder, a Scotch-Brite wheel, and you'll never even know they were there if done properly. So this can be expanded to the five axis world. And you usually have a long part cantilevered off the side of a vise mm. and you take very small cuts because the part has weight and it'll try to drop under gravity. Mm -hmm. But if you leave a, a thin strip or a couple of tabs, especially if you can get the tabs on two different planes for stability, mm -hmm. you, you can leave five thousandths of material, maybe ten thousandths, and uh, break the part off with your finger. Wow. And it, it's basically separated and you didn't have to go and make soft jaws or do anything else to finish that part. So what I'm hearing is tabbing is a great way to eliminate fixturing and reduce the complexity of setups. Correct. 
and you usually pay for it on the front end. It takes additional programming time. You have to think very carefully about your workflow, but it means that if it saves you a setup, it can be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Or for, for, sure. for parts that are just not able to be made any, any other way because there's not a flat surface on the thing. And circling back to something we were talking about previously, I bet there's a bunch of videos on YouTube on how to do this. Absolutely. And if not on YouTube, then uh, just go look around Instagram. People love showing off how thin they can make their tabs on their five axis machines. Nice. I have one other question with Fusion 360 on the cam side. You've created templates for programming. Running one of these templates, how long does it take you to program a part? It is highly dependent on the part geometry. Sure. For a lot of simple parts that are just you know, three axis, fairly prismatic, no funky angles or anything, I can have a part programmed in less than five minutes. And um, because will, I you, will you touch that program? Will you run it as is? Usually I'll run it as is. To give credit where credit's due, this is Rob Lockwood's container method. He has an Autodesk University class. Now I have my own take on it with my own variations, but for the most part, we use the setup that he has published on the Autodesk University class, I think in 2018. The idea is you have a master file. It has a bunch of tool paths in it that have tools chosen. They have speeds and feeds, depths of cut, all of the rules and things Mm -hmm. that you'd want. Those are already set. You have a component in Fusion. Uh, A component is just, it's it's a part. It's also kind of a folder. You have essentially a folder that has your basic work holding in it. So we'll have a vice. You have a folder that has your stock and you have an empty folder for your model. So I open the template. I drag a model into the model folder. And now the cam setup is pointed not at a specific body, but it's pointed at that folder. So it Hmm. automatically detects that, hey, there's a model here and it already knows that the fixtures are there. And because Fusion has a lot of automatic toolpaths, everything in their 3D set. So the adaptive clearing, pocket clearing, horizontal, even their hole templates are actually getting really smart now and they, they can automatically detect holes and choose drills and things like that. As soon as I drop that in there, I press regenerate and I have something that would run for the vast majority of parts. Hmm. It may not be optimal, but if I need to get the part out the door quickly, I might just run it as is. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I can go through and take out tools that are too large or too small because I just start with a half inch end mill and work my way down to tiny. So I just delete mm-hmm. the ones that aren't necessary delete 3D machining or hole drilling or things that aren't necessary. I basically start with a list of everything I could need and then trim it down rather than starting conventionally with a blank slate and adding things as I need them and making decisions and making selections. This goes the other way. And of course, as we go down from large tools to small tools, they all have a rest machining on. So it looks at what's been done by the previous tool and it only machines the areas that are unable to be reached by the previous ones. How long did this take you to originally set up the template? And I would assume that you're constantly refining it and tweaking it. There's nothing in the shop that's not constantly being refined. But but roughly when you decided you wanted to have a template to do this, how long did it take you to get it up and running where it was? Uh, Maybe it took a weekend to get the milling template dialed and maybe a weekend for the lathe template. Mm -hmm. It's mostly just about thinking about what sort of parts you might encounter creating tool paths that would be suitable for that geometry. Mm-hmm. And then you save that and set it aside. Now, there's a little bit more to this as well on the work holding side. We always model all of our fixtures. There's no part floating in space here. 
because mm -hmm. we need to know if we're going to hit something and so that fusion can avoid it or at least we're alerted and we can make a change so included in the template is uh, a selection of vices and they all have joint origins which in fusion they're essentially coordinate systems so when you import your part you just attach the part to that coordinate system and uh, we have parametric stock so you just open the parameter window you, you enter what stock size you need Mm -hmm. um, and you can see it update in real time. And it, because of the joint origins, it maintains all of the correct relationships between the vice and the stock and the stock and the part. And it's automatically spaced the correct distance off the bottom of the stock so that we don't run into any vice jaws. Mm -hmm. So very, very quickly, you can have a part in the correct place in space and it's going to match reality. You can generate a toolpath that will run and you can start going right away. And then for more complex parts, you start with this and then you add everything else as necessary. Right. But we have a, the template contains both operation one and a, a couple of variations on a second operation. So depending on the part geometry, you just hit regenerate on one of those. Mm -hmm. And same deal, if you're putting it into hard jaws with a work stop, you're done. It'll deck off the back, chamfer the edges, and you're finished. If you need to do some drilling on some other sides, there are operations for that and various other flavors of the same sort of thing, whatever might be necessary to finish a typical part. So the idea is that we're reducing the number of decisions that anyone has to make. These are all known good strategies. They're all set up in such a way that you pretty much can't crash unless you go in and mess with the settings. So they're proven and we know we can take them out to the shop and run them and anyone here can program it very easily. So if you are a larger shop, it's a way to bring in a say junior programmer and then have the eyes of a senior programmer on it as opposed to having the skill set of the senior programmer assuming the templates aren't there and they're doing it from scratch mm -hmm. you can bring in less expensive labor and get parts out more quickly yeah. and i know that this in different flavors is available in other CAM software as well. It's just the idea that th these are the types of efficiencies that you can see in terms of the people side if you bring in inefficiencies on your machine runtime side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, this probably only makes sense for shops who do smaller runs. You want the experienced person to optimize everything when you're doing thousands of pieces. Right. But if, if you do small lots like us, this is a great way to not only save time, but also reduce the number of chances for error and mm -hmm. re reduce the decision fatigue. Because in any given CAM program, there are hundreds of different variables mm -hmm. that you need to make a decision on. And instead of putting the same numbers in every time or recalculating it every time, if you just find some good ones that work for the bulk of situations, you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And you don't have a chance of misjudging something and you know, thinking, oh, maybe I'll try running this a little bit faster. And then you throw a part and you break a tool and you have a bad day. Mm -hmm. It's just going to work. You can walk away from it almost, depending on how brave you're feeling. One other area that you have put a lot of automation into that's not necessarily common at shops is in your inspection. And you're using the Renshaw probes in the machining centers for in-process inspection. Can you talk about that and how much you are actually inspecting at the machine? Yeah, our inspection setup consists of our Tessa Height 700 height gauge here on the surface plate, a variety of handheld inspection tools, but the 
primary inspection tool we use is the probe that's already built right into the machine. Now, Fusion 360 has fairly recently added the ability to not only probe just for a coordinate system, as most people are used to doing, but you can actually use the machine almost as a CMM, as a coordinate measuring machine. And you can use it in two different modes. You can use it in three, technically. One's a, a version of another. So you can do geometry inspection. This is where you might be probing two faces to get a, a width measurement, or maybe you're probing a bore for a diameter. Mm-hmm. Renishaw has been able to do this for a long time. However, you have to read the manual and write all the macros by hand, and you're sitting there wondering if you're entered a variable wrong and you're going to crash the probe. And it's too much work to do on a daily basis on a short run program. So most people just don't. But since Fusion will output that directly now and it'll go and do all the calculations for you and show you a, a graphical representation of what's going to be probed where, you can just output that and you can even put it in your CAM templates. So it just inspects the length with height of your parts, maybe some hole diameters. And it's very easy to set up. And recently, in addition to just outputting that and then getting a text file on the other end, it can import that. And now you get a graphical inspection report with color-coded iconography (laughs) that shows you if something is under or oversized or within tolerance. And you can do a full inspection report with size and position. And you can have it automatically update your tool wear compensation so that if a part is drifting away from nominal, the machine itself can correct that. Wow. So... That adds so much automation. Your worker doesn't have to uh, mic every part anymore. Your machine can just check it and it'll throw a flag if it's out of tolerance and then you can go and correct it. That combined with automatic tool breakage detection makes it very, very easy to automate even a short run and walk away from it and know that nothing terrible is going to go wrong. You're not going to make a bunch of bad parts. Now, the second mode that Fusion 360 can operate in is surface inspection. With the surface inspection mode, Instead of picking specific faces to measure or bores or bosses, you just click a point and it goes and it compares that point's location to the solid model. So this doesn't necessarily know that you're measuring a bore or you're measuring an arc or something, but you can go and just put a hundred points on your model. And especially for organic surfaces that are not necessarily flat that you wouldn't be able to measure without a CMM. This is a great way to get an idea of how they're doing. This also imports as a graphical overlay right on your model. It, it looks like a porcupine and every point is color-coded. So you can see actually based on the, there are little cylinders that go onto the model and based on the length, it determines how far it is from nominal. So you can look at your model and if everything's nice and flat, you're pretty close. And if you're starting to look like a porcupine, then you might need to go adjust something. You're drifting farther and farther from the nominal dimension. And once it crosses the tolerance threshold, of course, they'll change colors. So that's very cool too. That's something that is not possible without Fusion 360. It's not built into the typical Renishaw software. You'd normally need a CMM and you know, PC Demis or, or you know, similar software to pull this off, which is not accessible to a small shop because CMMs are 100 grand or more. And how much are the Renishaw probes? I think if you buy it new with a Haas machine, I think the tool probe plus the spindle probe are $6,000. Very, very affordable, a huge labor saver. Even without this, I'd buy one just for the setup time reductions. It can inspect the machine, the parts as well right in the machine. And I know before I get up from my desk whether I have a good part or a bad part. I mean, that's just priceless. What percentage of the features are you inspecting then in process at the machine? 
anything that's accessible, I try to inspect. It doesn't add very much time to the cycle mm -hmm. and it saves me administrative workload. I will still verify critical features off the machine because the metrology experts will tell you that you should never measure a part with the machine that made it. Mm -hmm. And there's something to that. But for mm -hmm. standard job shop tolerances, if you calibrate your probe with an accurate ring gauge on a regular basis and your machine isn't completely worn out, it's a perfectly valid way to at least do a first article inspection and make sure that you're in the ballpark. And an extension of the surface inspection that is super cool is Fusion 360's, I think they call it part alignment. So say you have a part that was made on another machine. You can put it into your machine or even on the same machine, but in a different setup. You can probe it like you would normally and get a single datum point. Everything's going to be driven on, but that part could be bigger in some areas and smaller in others, or maybe it's a casting and the size varies from casting to casting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you just probe one datum point, it may not clean up all the way. So that usually requires the operator taking manual measurements and adjusting things. And it's really time consuming. So you can do surface inspection and first probe however many points you want on your model, anything from five or 10 up to a hundred points. And then Fusion will import that data and do a best fit on it. And then do a transform on your G-code and spit that back out for your machine. And now your G-code is tailor-made to fit that part as well as it can. And it'll do XYZ translation as well as rotation in any axes you allow it to. So if you had to maintain a specific engraving depth, for example, mm -hmm. on a part that was machined, or maybe it went off to anodizing and it came back and now you have to engrave it. You don't know exactly what size that is, but with the part alignment, it, it doesn't matter what size it is. It will do the best it can given the exact part geometry of this particular part. And that's extremely powerful. It saved me many times when I take a part out, measure it, and then realize something's off and needs to go back in the machine but mm -hmm. due to the fixturing, there's no guarantee it's in exactly the same spot as before. This will go and adjust it, and it tells you the results before, and then it tells you how close it was able to get it afterwards on wow. a graph. So I think the x-axis represents the initial spread, mm -hmm. and then the y-axis represents the corrected spread. So the wider and narrower your graph is, the better it was able to align it. It's really cool. It's brand new if if you haven't tried it yet and you're a fusion 360 user i highly recommend it i want to take this opportunity just to ask you is there anything else you want to add share with the audience before we sign off we're trying to be a really lean efficient little job shop we want to make good parts and we're trying to leverage technology to do so and also i don't like doing work so the more i can do to automate it the better i like playing with new ideas and new technologies and you know, once i've conquered something if i can automate it and never do it again that's a win if anyone has any questions about this or wants to discuss further you can find us on uh, instagram we're active there that's where we post a lot of the cool stuff that we're working on you can email me or you know in any way that you can you'd like to get in touch. I'm happy to share all of this and you know, help other people do the same. What is your website address and your email address? You can reach us at contact at p3dcreations.com uh, or our, our website is just p3dcreations.com. Excellent. Well, Nick, I really appreciate you coming on today, sharing your story with us, some fantastic little ways that you are applying technology, how you've structured your shop with the software to reduce the labor and costs. And I like how 
you don't want to do something again. Once you figure it out, you want to automate it. It's a totally different way about thinking about running a shop when you don't come from a shop background. So I think our listeners will definitely be pondering some of these approaches, hopefully trying some of the tools and technology that you talked about. I'm just thinking, wow, with Rapid, there would have been so many fun little projects to try to push the ball forward with and things that we weren't doing that you, again, as a small startup shop, are innovating, making happen. They are making your business profitable. So kudos to you for what you've accomplished so far. Thank you. And maybe check back in a year or two. We'll have even more stuff to talk about. Well, maybe we can coax you to put up a little YouTube video on some of the integrations that you're doing with Airtable to some of the other apps out there. In the meantime, everyone, what can you do with what you've heard? Try something. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those lasers cutting. Okay, Google, show's over. I am transcribing your podcast now. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to the Job Shop Show.